millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey folks, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. Now I've been filming a lot with the Royal Mint recently. We've got a special History Hit partnership with the Royal Mint. They make all the coins and stuff. Unbelievable. And they've been doing so for over a thousand years. Love those guys. So it made sense that we do a little podcast now because I visited the Royal Mint at a secret location. It's not a secret, actually. It's on Google Maps. But you can go. It's near Cardiff in the valleys of South Wales. It is the second oldest mint in the world. It's the oldest company in the UK. They've got the rarest coins in the history of Britain. And minting coins, sorting out the money, is one of the most basic, fundamental roles of government. As such, Their history is entwined with the history of the 61 monarchs who've ruled England and Britain over the last 1,200 years. It's an awesome place. So I went and looked through some of the rarest coins in the collection with Chris Barker. He's a historian at the Royal Mint Museum. It's a wonderful uh, visitor attraction. Go over there and you can see the Alfred coin. You get to see a Waterloo medal. Oh, some real treats in there, let me tell you. And he took me through some of the rarest coins in the collections in their vault, stuff that's not even in the museum, which was great. The ones that I really enjoyed were the ones from Edward VIII. There were coronation coins created for Edward VIII, but they were never released because he abdicated. So they're now extraordinarily valuable. And there's a lot of them there in the museum. If you wish to watch videos about the Royal Mint, please head over to our History Hit YouTube page, our Facebook page, and there'll be stuff appearing on our subscription TV channel as well. History Hit TV on all smart TVs, handheld devices, and all sorts of things, wherever the internet works. Tens of thousands of people watching around the world, so very, very grateful to you all for doing that. So go and check out History at TV. If you follow the link in the notes of this podcast, it'll take you straight there. But in the meantime, here is our very exciting podcast with Chris Barker and the Royal Mint Museum. Enjoy. Chris, thanks so much for coming on the pod, buddy. Pleasure. Always have to help. So we are standing in the inner sanctum. I have to go through several layers of security to get here. What room is this? So we're actually in the museum room itself, where all the coins and the medals and the seals are actually kept. But it's not, no one can come here. It's not open to public. It's not, no. But if you're a researcher, you can book and you want to have a look at some of the stuff, we're always happy to help with that as well. And you've got these amazing uh, cases that we've got long sort of shelves. It's very much like a, a normal archive, but long shelves. Beautiful handmade wooden cases by looks at lining all the shelves. And so these are all the coins in here. These coins are kept here. We've got medals here. And we've got seals as well, which the rinse has been made. And also objects relate to the mint. You know, the cabinet over there, for example, showing off a little bit is Newton's cabinet. Belonging what? to Isaac Newton from his time as master of the mint. Get out of here. Uh, you've got various paintings and 
statues as well relating and what, to. And what about that chair then? What's the difference that chair over there? So that, that chair there is actually King's Bottom Chair. No. It's, called. it's come from Tower Hill when we moved down and four kings are said to have sit in it when they came to the Royal Mint. Really? Yeah. So some fantastic objects dotted around. So how many coins have you got in here? We've got roughly over 100,000, but we're always what? adding to it all the time. No yeah. way. Growing all the time. But that's British and foreign as well? British, overseas, the Mint's done for every country around the world pretty much. We've done something for them. Um, but wow. in terms of where we all begin, it starts here really. So, How far back do you go? We go all the way back in terms of our establishment to the reign of Alfred the Great. Oh really? And that is what we see here in this tray. We've got some Anglo-Saxon silver pennies, a few Viking imitations, but the interesting yes. one is this down here. So we've got in. Obverse, the head side, this and one here. the reverse side there as well. So what we see here is a penny of Alfred the Great. So the sort of stylized depiction of old Alfred there. Nose, wow. his eye there, and the hair. The split inscription, Alfred. The interesting thing is the reverse, with this Londonia monogram. And you've got his brother here, so you do go back earlier as well. So why, why is Alfred so special? Alfred is a sort of symbolic start date for us, really. When he claims London and starts minting in London, okay. that's where we sort of get our beginnings from in roughly sort of the 880s. When that happens, that's when you can trace the founding of the Royal Mint. And it's a bit of a shaky start, but we can certainly say from hand on heart that from the late 9th century onwards, you've got a continuous history of an organisation that we know as the Royal Mint. And it's based in London, creating coins for the realm. That's what Alfred the Great establishes is a strong centralised royal control of the coinage from London and there are other mints dotted around his realms. But what you get is this strong control from the centre, which has been dominant right from Alfred's reign. In that case, the big question is, what do coins mean? What's the purpose of coins? It's an interesting question because what you see at this point in history is a coinage that relies on its weight in precious metal to give it its value. So it should have a penny's worth of silver in it. And what you do is you put an image on that as the government, as the monarchy, to show that it's official and to show that the public can trust that what they're dealing with actually has that value. That sort of ties in to why you get this imagery appearing on coinage. You know, why not just use blank discs of silver? You've got to show it's approved, you've got to show it's regulated, and that sort of ties in to the very fundamental basics, the fundamental beginnings, really, of what coinage is. So I can trust that. If someone gives me that, I can trust it. You can see you've got the representation of a monarch on there. You know it comes under the control of Alpha the Great. He's in charge. You can rely on that to be worth what it says it is, what it's meant to be. So that's being minted in, in London, and then from this point on, that's the, well, the beginning of a the Wessex, English, and then the yeah. British states. It grows from there, and you have mints dotted around England and the United Kingdom more generally, uh, all of them producing coinage, because it's much easier to have little mints dotted around England rather than have one centralised mint at this point. Sending coinage around the country from London is very tricky in you know, the Anglo-Saxon period with the road system. And is there a proliferation of coins? I mean, are there different kinds of coins that represent different amounts of wealth? Not at this point. You're pretty much dealing with only one coin in circulation, okay. pretty much. It's one denomination, rather, and that is the penny. And that's what we see here is a whole host of pennies. And that's because you don't really get a monetary economy as we know it. So don't think of this idea of going to market and buying goods with coinage on a regular basis. Your normal person is often being paid in kind, really. You know, your shelter, your food, your drink. The penny at this point is a very high-value coin. Oh, really? You're paying taxes with it. That's what it's for. Um, so it's not really monetary economy as we know it today. Oh really? So these would have usually been people, wealthy people, 
higher value purchases, okay. people paying their taxes with these type of things. It's not sort of everyday currency in a way that we would understand it today. Interesting. So you've got his older brothers here like Ethelred. Why do you think Alfred's so important? Alfred is the important point because it's where we begin as a Royal Mint. That's where we trace our origins back to. Okay, so we've got these unbelievable, these incredible, what are these cases? They're absolutely gorgeous, aren't they? And each one of them is full of coins. That's correct. We've got all the coins from the collection are housed in these beautiful little rectangular boxes that we see here. They are unbelievable. I love them. Anyway, so let's get the coins out. What do you call these? A tray of a tray, coins? A tray of yeah, coins. A tray of so coins. what we've seen here is this tray of Anglo-Saxon silver pennies it. and some Viking imitation pennies up here. Roughly about the same size as the penny is today, really. Yeah, and about 100 on this particular tray. And I love that Ethelred, Alfred's older brother, yeah, yeah. who died mortally wounded in battle. Well, died of wounds. And Alfred here, is he your sort of founder, really? He, he is where it all begins. And what we see here are pennies of Alfred the Great. And, and you can see his depiction of his portrait on there. There right? he is, the great man. Slightly Roman Emperor-esque in appearance. Yeah, well, there you go. Yeah. Obsessed with Rome, the legacy of Rome. And then what, is that L? Uh, what's... That's called the London monogram penny. So what you have on here is all the letters to spell out Londonia. So you've got an L, an O in the middle, and an N that runs across the entire coin, the D at the end, and, and a little I tucked inside the D. And there is a very faint connection between the downstrokes of the L and the N, which gives you the A as well all the letters required to spell out Londonia. So he's saying, I'm Alfred, you can trust me, this coin's minted in London and it is legal tender, you can trust it. That's what you're saying, yes, it's struck in London, I'm in charge and this is something that's struck under my royal authority and you can accept that. I love it, you've got Edred, Edward the Elder, Edmund, yeah, all of the Edwig, here. Yeah. some of the uh, slightly shorter lived Anglo-Saxon kings. And they're all broken down by rain and you've also got in this tray little spaces which are the red dots where we can actually add more should any of them. What, you mean there are gaps in your <laughs> there collection? There are gaps in our collection. Whoa. So there are gaps. Hey everyone, if anyone's yeah. got a um, Edward the Elder, looks like you need an extra Edward we the Elder. We can do with a couple more of them, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Athelstan, what a legend. Yeah. I'm a big Athelstan fan. Okay, well, if anyone's got those coins, please uh, send them in. Okay, so we've gone from the early English, let's get to the Normans and the yeah, so okay, yeah, further down. With only one coin in denomination, rather, in circulation, you do need change sometimes. And what they would actually oh, quite literally that. do is chop the coins into halves and to quarters. Oh my God. So what you see here is the basis of the British predecessor system of halfpennies and farthings. Quite <laughs> literally half or a quarter in the farthings case. So a very practical way to deal with small changes. So halfpenny, half penny for yeah. our foreign fans, is actually just literally half a penny. Literally half it. a penny. And farthing, probably the name farthing may well have been derived from forthing, forthing, farthing. So four parts, so you see how these, some of these names may have developed. So we've got Edward I there. His imperial aspirations for the whole of British Isles. Mm -hmm. So it says Bristol, Basin, Edmunds, Berwick. These are coins being minted elsewhere in the kingdom. Isn't this it? is representing that spread of mints. Still royal mints, but dotted in various parts of the kingdom. So you've got Bristol and Berwick, as you mentioned. And what you would do is you'd have strong control of the coinage dies, and you'd send them out to these regional mints. So you're still controlling it very tightly. And around the side here, you've got Edward. Yep. Written, yeah. And it's actually during his reign that you start to see a little bit more expansion in terms of denominations. So we see here this larger coin, which is actually a groat, a fourpence piece. The famous groat. It's a groat, yeah, and that comes in roughly when the Royal Mint moves into the Tower of London in about 1279. Because Edward expands the Tower, doesn't he? So he does, yeah. yeah. It's under his watch that the Mint finally moves from various locations dotted around the capital in London into one centralised location in London, which is the Tower of London itself. I love that. 
So that is very cool. So they've literally been chopped, quite finely chopped, haven't they? They haven't just been... Yeah, very finely chopped. It's interesting as well that the design on the reverse and the, the tail side actually has a cross on. So if you're going to start chopping your coins into oh, halves and quarters, it does, it? it's quite useful to have that there as a bit of a guide. Probably a little bit, yeah. There's obviously and, religious overtones. And if as well. those ended up, when the tax came in and there were lots of farthings and halfpennies, would they just melt them all down and start again? That's the joy of what you're dealing with here is a, a coinage that you can actually just remelt and begin again. Yeah. The difficulty is with these smaller denominations like the farthing, the quarter, very, very fiddly, very, very tiny. Say that again. I mean, for people listening, it's the size of a small fingernail. It, absolutely, absolutely tiddly. Tiny, it's yeah. very, very small, and you could easily lose that. What else have we got? Let's keep going. We've done the groats. So if we move from here, we'll start to look at some gold coinage. So you have to wait a while before you get a regular supply of gold coins. And that doesn't Whoa. come back until the reign of Edward III. Look at those. And what we see is the first regular gold coinage in England, which is called a gold noble. It's this spectacular gold coin that we see that, here. Those are just magical. So what was the reason for these gold coins? So what we see here is Edward III in England more generally catching up with what's going on in continental Europe. You've got a gold coinage in continental Europe for quite some time. And so this is England's first attempt to really keep up with that. So what we have here are these stunning gold coins and they're worth quite a lot of money. So they're worth at the time six shillings and eightpence, which sounds bonkers to modern ears yeah. because it doesn't really work as a domination you think, but it does because three of these means you've got actually a one pound. And that means a pound of gold literally in weight. Of, and also in denomination as well. Right. So that's what you're coming from, the 20 shilling piece, the idea of 20 shillings worth of money. And how many pence in a shilling? How many pence in a shilling? So you've got 12 pence to a shilling, 20 shillings to a pound. Right, okay. It's the very sort of daft bonkers pre-decimal system no, it makes sense. that we, makes uh, sense. We, we lost in the 70s, um, which always blows overseas visitors' minds. So you're looking here, this would be a fortune in the 40s. This century. is a huge amount of money. This is only going to be used by your merchants, your banks and your gentry, and it's going to go across national boundaries. So imagine an English merchant going off to France to buy goods in bulk. He's probably paying his French counterpart with a small purse full of these things, and that explains the time and effort that have gone into making this a truly remarkable, stunning coin. And again, it has to be reliable because otherwise trade will break down. There'll be no trust. Exactly, yeah. And um, you have to make sure you get the right ratio of gold to the value of the coin. This is actually Edward's second attempt of a gold coinage. The first one, he gets it wrong. There's too much gold in relation to its actual face value and people just melt it down because it's worth more as bullion. So if anyone comes across leopards, um, which are up here, they're extremely valuable pieces because it's next to none left. These leopards here? These leopards up here, yeah. Wow. Now, these are unbelievably intricate. At what, are they five centimetres across, would you say, in diameter? Ish, give or take, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they are, they inscribe the most beautiful images of a ship. And that's why I like them in mm. particular. Talk me through that ship. So what you see is this sort of medieval cog, a little bit, little bit banana shape, really, for the average viewer in terms of its appearance at the bottom. And in there, you've got Edward III standing in his armour with a drawn sword, crowned and with a shield. And on the shield, you have the uh, coat of arms. So is he, is he actually standing in there, is he? He's sort oh, of that in, is him, in that's his head. Yeah, yeah, oh, that was the mast. That's the man himself. Oh that's my Edward goodness, III. he's towering over the hull. Yep, he's with a his huge shield, figure. With the coat of arms of the King of France and England. Yeah, combined together. That is the least subtle thing I've ever seen in my life. What is going on with these designs? And... So what you have is thinking about the iconography of coinage now, and you're thinking about the messages you can convey on a coin. So Edward III is the king that really sort of kicks off the Hundred Years' War. Battle of Sluice. Exactly. Goes and well. This actually 
probably references that. I bet it does. Yeah, I was thinking that. It must do. It's the first great naval battle of the Hundred Years' War, isn't it? And knowing that these will be seen overseas, particularly in places like France, what you want to do as king is you want to hammer home that message that I am rightful claimant to the French throne. I can claim it. I've got the martial might to do so. Hence the ship, the naval battle that he wins. Hence the drawn sword. And also the coat of arms on his shield, where you've got the French fleur-de-lis in the first and the fourth quarter. So the shield of an Anglo-French monarchy. Yeah, an Anglo-French yeah. monarchy. So you're hammering home this message that I am in charge and I can reclaim the French throne. It is mine and I have the martial might to do so. Coins do a lot of heavy lifting, don't they? I mean, through our history, they're an expression of royal power. Mm -hmm. They're sort of international propaganda. They're an essential tool of trade. I mean, it's, there's so many different jobs. The joy of them is that even though they're quite small, relatively, you can fit quite a lot of messaging onto them and they're highly portable as a result. And that means that this messaging that you've got in here, which is quite cleverly done, can be seen much more widely. You know, it's gonna go into continental Europe. This is gonna be seen by the right sort of people in continental Europe. So you're getting a very powerful message across. Asking for a friend, how much <laughs> would it cost to buy one of those now? It's tricky because they do vary, but if you've got a spare sort of 20,000 pounds knocking around, you'll probably be able to get sort of an entry level one. <laughs> and they go up in value from there, depending on condition, depending on rarity and different types. So uh, anywhere between 20, 40 and above 1,000 pounds. And so those coins are being individually crafted? They are, they're being individually struck, hammered out. If you look behind you, you can pick yeah. up some tooling okay. as to how they're actually made. So that's part of it, that's the other half. So this is the basic bit of kit for striking a coin in the medieval period. It's called a pile and trussle. The pile is the lower half here. So that spike would secure it into a lump of wood. And this would have an engraved image on it. Okay. Um, and that's where you put your blank of metal and then you put your top half, the trussle, onto it. Well, like that? Other way around. Okay. That's it. And then you whack it. And then you whack it. And that explains the damage we see at the top here. Okay, so they are all the same because there would have been an original... There would have been an engraver, yeah. somebody who was actually making these, so actually carving into this steel that into, we see into here. Into this here? Yeah. Or actually hammering in little shapes. We think they might have had little shapes, like a little straight line or a little curve, and they were tapping it in to develop the image. And that's how you develop tooling. And that is why all the coins we've seen are very, very thin as well, because there's only so much force you can apply by walloping something right. with a hammer. Right. So you've got to have them very thin to get the actual impression on them. So these two lumps, in fact, you can still see. See, it's the vague outline of a design yeah. on there. Yeah. Can you see that? It's worn away over time and pitted. Um, Are they iron or steel? They're a mild steel of sorts. Mild steel. Yeah. In a way, it's quite clumsy. There's a contrast, isn't there, between this kind of lump of steel yeah. and then the intricacy of what's being engraved on, on the top there or carved into the top. You think about those nobles, how beautiful they are, and you look at how they're made. It's a very crude method of it manufacture. It does feel crude, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, it is. Um, and the, the top's been whacked with a hammer, and you can see it's kind of coming apart. Love it. And when did these take from? These are sort of from the later medieval period, from the uh, 15th century, if I remember rightly. Oh, it's all going mm. off. You know, yeah. Wars of the Roses. But one of the things about medieval tooling is it's very hard to find. There's very little of it. I'll bet. Because they tended to recycle them when they were run out. So I'm, they I'm, melt them down and sure, start all over again. Yeah. And also not something that people maybe would keep. And exactly. It's something that you just gorgeous scrap item. metal. Yeah. Um, this job here must be one of the most extraordinary incredible. jobs. And yeah. they had no magnification at that stage? No. Very little. Yeah, you're not going to have a lot that you can work off. You're just working off by eye. And there's no master, so to speak. So what an engraver does when this is finished, they will have to just copy as best they can from the last one. 
that you're always going to get slight variation on all of these coins that we've seen there. Slight differences in the hair or in the ship. You're going to get those differences because you're copying by eye what's done previously. And so you can tell exactly where these coins fit in a sequence and when yeah. they were struck. By studying these designs, you get some idea of what's going on. But you also get little marks on there as well. Tiny, tiny little dating marks called privy marks. There are a little sun, there are a little flower, something on that. And that gives you an idea of when they're made. And this was going on in the Tower of London? This happens in the Tower of London. So from 1279, we move into the Tower and we're there for centuries. There's the Tower, there was a royal zoo there, there yeah. was a, everything that's going on in the Tower. It was a thriving place. Exactly. And it was a busy, busy place. There's a lot going on. And we forget as well that it was a garrison. And one of the problems we had as the Mint was that we often ended up sort of butting heads with the garrison who wanted our space to house troops. And certainly in Newton's time as master, which is in the early 1700s, there were reports of drawn swords, fights, you know, drunken brawls between Mint workers and the garrison. So it would have been quite a contested space and an interesting space in which to work, I think. And also throw a lot of precious metal into that as well. Exactly. Yeah. And one of the th times that we have been robbed, one of the very few times, in fact the only time we've had an armed robbery, was when a member of the garrison actually held up the mint and legged it down to the south coast with a couple of bags of golden guineas in the 1790s. Did he get away with it? He didn't. He was caught on the Kent coast, brought back, brought to trial and hung for his crimes. You're listening to Dan Snow's History. I'm in the Royal Mint Museum. More coming up. Hi there. I'm Kate Lister, sex historian and author and I am the host of Betwixt the Sheets, The History of Sex, Scandal and Society, a new podcast from History Hit. Join me as I root around the topics which have been skipped over in your school history lessons. Everything from the history of swearing, to pubic hair, satanic panic, cults, there is nothing off limits. We'll be bed-hopping around different time periods, from ancient civilizations to the Middle Ages, to Renaissance and early modern, right up to now. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Old Testament. It is one of the most influential collections of texts ever created. And this month on The Ancients, we are exploring some of the Hebrew Bible's most well-known stories, people, objects, and kingdoms, and the influences that inspired them. From the Mesopotamian origins behind the well-known creation story of Noah's Ark and the Great Flood to world-shaping prophets like Moses, sacred artifacts like the Ark of the Covenant, and the archaeology of Temple Mount. Stay tuned for new episodes of our Old Testament series out every Thursday this June on The Ancients from History Hit. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Where are we going next? So we're going to see how it changes, but we're first going to segue into the Commonwealth and Cromwell. Yes, that'd be a good one. We'll tell a lot about the changing nature of power, I'm sure. It's a really interesting period, the Commonwealth and then when Cromwell is in charge, because obviously Charles I loses the civil wars and yeah. his, his head's taken off and then you get the Commonwealth and we have coinage of the Commonwealth. Ooh, quite boring. Very bland, very yeah. puritanical. But interestingly, we go to English inscriptions. Is it? Yeah. So you can see Commonwealth of England on here. Oh, that's right. It was in Latin before. It was in Latin before. So sweeping away all of that popery that you get associated with, you know, say, the Catholic Church and, and Latin phrasing. England and Ireland. Yeah. And Poor you, old Wales doesn't get a look in, obviously. It never does, unfortunately. No. Um, but very, very heraldic. One thing to note is that you've got, an, this is the heads and, well, what was the heads, the obverse and the reverse side of the same coin here. Okay. No crowned head. Oh, yeah, of course. You've yeah, got yeah. no crowned head, and you've got the arms of England, and you've mentioned Ireland instead. That's during the Commonwealth era. Okay. Then you get Cromwell. Hold on a second. And you get a very contrast, great contrast. That's not Cromwell, is it? That is Cromwell. Oh, yeah, look. Oliver. And you've got these titles there that you would get in Latin, like We're you back would get in Latin. with any oh, reigning monarch. And the interesting one is the reverse. So we see here the arms of England as it is at the time. And interestingly, it's crowned for one, but in the centre you have Cromwell's arms as well. No. Yeah. And you have this incredibly Orwellian inscription, which is, I'll not do the Latin, but it translates basically into peace through war, which gives this idea of a military what? dictator. With the coinage really does demonstrate what Cromwell is. King in all but name and a With military dictator. a huge dictator. crown on it. Yeah. That tells you everything you need to know, doesn't it? Yep, it's brilliant coinage for demonstrating what was going on at the time. And obviously Scotland incorporated in there as yeah. well after the conquest of Scotland. That is just, in one object, you're learning so much there about completely, the completely. nature of Cromwell's rule. They're some of my favourite pieces, really, because you can see how coinage can be used to tell the story of history. You've yeah. got the Commonwealth and those puritanical ideas sweeping away the king, and then you've got Cromwell coming in as a military dictator, just like the king was. All right, that's Oliver Cromwell done. So, from there, I want to return back to production and see how things change. Because you go from those thin coins that we've seen in the medieval period to a much thicker coinage when Charles II is restored. Here we go. And we can see how things start to change because you go from basically a medieval production system to a modern one. Not quite overnight, but you get the idea. So you can see the first coins of his reign, yeah. still hammered out as you very, see those. Very clearly, yeah, very yeah. flat. Very flat, very thin relief, very yeah. poor, to these pieces Ooh, here. chunky. Huge difference. And that is because you're starting to use something called a screw press, which is basically a fly press, a ginormous screw. And you've got two chaps pulling on one side on ropes attached to a counterweight, two on another. That creates a screw motion. The screw descends with a tool stuck at the bottom and it strikes the coins. And because you're using a screw, you can impart a lot more pressure, hence how much thicker they are. Little elephant down there, which just comes as a surprise. <laughs> what you're looking at here is the guinea family. So a five guinea piece, double guinea, and a guinea down here. It's a new denomination at the start of Charles's reign. And the elephant is a, what we call a privy mark that it denotes the source of the bullion that went into making up these coins. Is it from West Africa? Well, the elephant is a mark of the African company, and okay. the Africa company import the gold from the Guinea coast of Africa, hence the name Guinea. Wow. That's how the coin picks up its name. It is astonishing how much you can tell from coins, because obviously this is the period where English merchants are beginning to play a greater and greater role in the trade in enslaved Africans, taking across the Middle Passage to the Americas, and here it is 
you get hints of that right on this coinage. Writ large on the coinage with these little symbols that you see in terms of the elephants, yeah. Right, so we're approaching, yep. very excitingly now, the 18th century. And I need to, to show you my precious treasure that I found. Let's have a look. On the foreshore of the Thames, a George II coin. You've got Britannia on there, you can clearly yeah, see it. Yeah, 1752, so just almost seven years war, which is a particular area of interest for me. But what can you tell me about that? What is it? So what you actually have here is a halfpenny. So That's a halfpenny? This is a halfpenny. Oh. Yeah, it's a copper halfpenny. And we have... It's actually, how do you know that? Because it's small, you can just... It's the size. So you, well, also from the design, obviously you can see George II on there, but what you get is Britannia appearing on the copper uh, halfpennies and farthings of the period. Interestingly enough, it does tie in with Charles II, as we were talking about earlier, because it's during his reign that you start to see copper halfpennies and farthings okay. being struck. But yes, we also have one of these ourselves. Oh, brilliant. Well, I'm not surprised. Are you telling me this isn't the rarest coin in the world and it's worth 10 million quid? I'm afraid, um, I'm afraid not. Okay. Unfortunately, you might it's have very to common. hold off on your expectations of value. Well, okay, good. Right, where's next? So, I'll pop these away and then we can go and look at some great rarities that we actually have in the museum's collection. Because one of our real strengths as a collection is we have a, a lot of rare coins. And I can't let you go today without you seeing the coinage of Edward VIII. Right, who only ruled for months. Edward VIII is the infamous monarch who abdicates in 1936. He comes to the throne in January 1936 and he abdicates in December. As a result of that, no coins bearing his effigy are ever struck for circulation. We were about a month away from going into mass production, planned for January 1937. Dodged a bullet there, didn't you? Yeah, well and truly. But the problem we have is that we go through the whole design process, creating a new monarch's coinage from new reverse designs and a new portrait. And what you see here are very, very rare coins because they're all the trials, the tests and the patterns that go into developing a new monarch's coinage. So hugely rare pieces as we didn't go into production. We're probably looking at the lion's share of the... Well and truly. And you can see from some of these marks here that the British Museum have to borrow the pieces from us because they don't have any in their collection. So it gives you an idea of how rare they are. But Edward is a very difficult man to deal with for us at the moment because it's tradition that the way the monarch faces should alternate by reign. And that is a long tradition that goes all the way back to Charles II. And Edward would have been the first monarch to have broken those centuries of tradition because he felt that this was his best side. Oh, no way. And he was doggedly determined to so have his, his best side. Left side of his face. Appear on the coinage, yeah. Ironically, though, it never was released. It was never issued. So his brother, George, was able to keep the tradition going. Yep, the mint sort of pretended that Edward played ball. And if you put three of them in a row, they actually face the same way because the public will have never seen these. So you actually have three monarchs facing in the same direction to maintain the tradition going through it all. One thing we forget about these and the abdication more generally is just how controversial it was. In 1936, this was a massive constitutional crisis. And we have a great object in our collection which helps illustrate that, which we can go and have a look at now. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so what have you got here? So we've come over here to look at the box in which the Edward VIII coinage was kept. And this, I think, really does demonstrate that constitutional crisis at the time in 1936. Because when he abdicates, the mint doesn't want to seem to be tainted by the controversy of Edward VIII. So all of those coins we've seen are bundled into this box. <laughs> it's you know, only a small box, and it's got this wonderful inscription, which is not to be opened except in the presence of two senior officers of the Royal Mint. 
Amazing. That was then clearly wrapped up with string. And with the a string seal on it. is then sealed off to show if anybody's been Old at it. Old fashioned wax seal. And these, this little box of coins, sits at the back of the Deputy Master's safe for about 30 years before in the 1970s they're finally allowed to enter the light of day and come into the museum's collection. So they weren't even allowed into the museum? No, they sat at the back of the Deputy Master's safe. That shows how toxic it was. Right? Completely. And if we open it, we can see how these things were stored. You've got all the little envelopes that we have here in which the coins themselves would have been kept. And you've got a little note here as well, which logs every time anybody would have accessed the actual collection itself. Something so symbolic about that. Just put them all in a box and, and shut hide it them away. away. Yeah, a, exactly. In a dark safe. And forget about them. In the Tower of London. Until such time as it's no longer controversial. Wow. So we've all got those things in our houses that we just want to push out the way and forget about. This is the raw mint's equivalent. Well, ours are a little monarchy, bit more valuable. The monarchy's dark secret. <laughs> exactly. And ironically, these are now the most valuable coins in your collection. Probably so. by far and away, yeah. Wow. Yeah, they're incredibly rare pieces. Isn't it funny? Yeah. They were the thing that your forebears were most Didn't embarrassed about. Didn't want to touch. And now they're the most, yeah. Yeah. Incredible object yeah. and an incredible story. And speaking of the shortest reigned monarch recently, you've got the Queen who's been around for... A lot longer. A lot yeah, longer. Yeah. And I guess, do these show the ageing process? They do. These are the five definitive portraits of the Queen's. These are the ones that appear on circulating coins. And we go from the young Queen Elizabeth here, the, the Mary Gillick version from the start of her reign in the 50s, through to the final one down there, which is done by former mint engraver Jodie Clark, and take you through the full 70 years of the Queen's reign. How often do you upgrade someone's face? There's no hard and fast rule, but it's okay. usually been about sort of every 15, 20 years or so that yeah. we've changed the portrait. And does the Queen have a role in okaying this? She does. So every coin design we make, she actually proves, and that's the same for her portraits. So she will sign off on every one of these. Does she ever say no? She's never said no. She has tweaked a few of them. Oh, really? But she's never actually said no. And um, the vast majority of the time, there was a direct line in as well to the design process. Because these are approved, well, recommended, I should say, by the Roman Advisory Committee. And the president of the Roman Advisory Committee, right up until 1999, was the Duke of Edinburgh. Oh, I see. So, so you've got the direct line in through her husband as to uh, the design of her portraits. And the crowns seem to change a bit, don't they? They do. Each artist can develop whatever they want, really, with the Queen's portrait, and they often change the crowns around a little bit. You can see you've got laurel wreaths on the first portrait through to tiaras and various crowns. Well, thanks so much. That was incredible. Pleasure. Before I go, what's your favourite coin of all the ones we've seen or, or ones we haven't seen? The probably ones that I have to say is actually a coinage portrait of Charles II. It's called the Petition Crown. It's done by an engraver called Thomas Simon. And it's a wonderful depiction of Charles II. You really get a sense of the playboy monarch from looking at this portrait. Love that. Chris, thanks so much for coming and talking me through the Royal Mint collection. It's been a great fun. It's been a pleasure. I think we had the history on our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone. Thanks, folks, for listening to this episode of Downstairs History. As I say all the time, I love doing these podcasts. They are the best thing I do professionally. I feel very lucky to have you listening to them. If you fancied giving them a rating and review, obviously the best rating review possible would be ideal. It makes a big difference to us. I know it's a pain, but we'd really, really be grateful. And if you want to listen to the other podcasts in our ever-increasing stable, don't forget we've got Susanna Lipscomb with Not Just the Tudors, that's flying high in the charts. We've got our medieval podcast, Gone Medieval, with the brilliant Matt Lewis and Kat Jarman. We've got The Ancients with our very own Tristan Hughes. And we've got Warfare as well, dealing with all things military. 
Please go and check those out wherever you get your pods. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. You can't really be proud of yourself if you don't know your history. Those were the words of Nelson Mandela and the foundation of a new podcast from The Times and The Sunday Times, Your History. Join me, Anna Temkin, Deputy Obituaries Editor of The Times, each week as we explore the astonishing lives that have shaped our own lives. Your History, available wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code Dan Snow at checkout.